Okay, is this actually working now? It looks like we're probably we're probably live. All right, great, good stuff. Okay, like I mentioned, um, I mean this is really just a, a test. I'm, I'm testing out this new streaming software. Um, it'll be really nice to actually here. Let me just I got the other one window open here. It'll be really nice to have this working because um, the plan is to bring on some guests. Um, and if I can do some live Q&As, that's great too. So um, this will be an interesting test. And I'm not sure if anybody will even show up to this stream, but um, I got a bunch of questions via email and some on the, the Facebook page. So we can go through um, those today. And if anybody is on and you see that either the video is not working properly or the audio is not great, let me know. I'm actually just using my webcam for this and I'm, I'm probably gonna set up an actual camera. So the video is probably not great, but if it's streaming, streaming it probably doesn't matter um, at, at this point. Okay, so just making sure everything seems to be working and what I can do here and then throughout the conversation. So we should be able to share the screen if we need to talk about anything um, specific or look at any forms um, or even some of, the, some of the calculators. So that should work there. All right. Okay, well, maybe maybe what we can do here, I'll, I'll go through some of the questions that I received um, via email. So that'll be a good start. Uh, once again, this this will be a good test for any future um, live streams. Uh, like I said, I'll be using this for um, interviews. So we have somebody lined up, uh, immigration attorney uh, from Toronto, which will be great to have on. Uh, so it'd be nice to actually have some some reflection of other uh, professionals on the on the podcast here. So Okay, so let's let's start with one one of the emails I received yesterday um, via email. Uh, I inherited a bunch of stocks from my father last year, and I will be selling them in 2022. Do I need to pay tax on the stocks, even though he already has? Okay, that was from Ken. Ken, thank you very much. Okay, once again, as with most tax questions, it really depends. Um, but so the way this works, and I'm I'm. I'm assuming you're, you're either a U.S. citizen or maybe your father was a U.S. citizen, and it shouldn't really matter. But we're going to talk just about, you know, Canadian uh, from a Canadian perspective right now. So if your father passed away and the stocks were not um, uh, were, were not transferred to a spouse, um, which means they would be deemed to be disposed at the fair market value when he passed away. And let's just use a let's just use a simple example here. So let's say um, he, he owned Apple stock that he paid $100 for, and at the time that he passed away, Apple stock was worth 150 and then you inherited the stock. So the way that would work is he would pay tax on uh, $50 of capital gain on the Apple stock, and you would receive the Apple stock with a new cost base of 150 So let's say you received the Apple stock and immediately sold the Apple stock. Your cost base would be 150. The fair market value, your proceeds would be 150. Uh, therefore, you'd have no capital gains. So you'd have no tax on that disposition. However, if you receive the Apple stock um, and your cost base was 150 and then Apple stock went up to 200 and then you sold it, you would have a capital gain of $50. But you wouldn't inherit the original cost base. And we're assuming here that we're not um, we're not dealing with any trust. You know, any of the assets you know got rolled into a trust, but just you just receive the um, the stocks after um, after probate and after everything got um, closed for the estate. Uh, so you would have a fifty dollar capital gain if um, uh, Apple stock went from fifty uh, one hundred and fifty dollars to two hundred and fifty after you inherited it. Um, 
and you got to be careful with this because often what will happen is stocks will get moved from one account to the next and they'll actually carry their historical basis. So if you're not paying attention, your father passes away. Um, he pays tax on the $50 capital gain that was inherent in the position. So his accrued capital gain. So that that's been taxed. If it gets transferred to your account and nobody updates the cost base and it just stays at historical base uh, basis, then you're um, uh, you're actually going to end up paying tax from $100 up to 200. So you'll pay tax on a $100 capital gain where your father's already paid tax on that $50. Uh, $50. So you really want to make sure that um, investments and in, in stocks or in, and this could be real estate as well that you inherit that you adjust your cost base for the inclusion they had when they passed away because if not you're just going to pay um you'll pay tax twice on the same on the same asset so hopefully that answers your question ken thank you very much for the e uh, email question that was awesome okay so let's uh what's a good one here okay so this is from this is from emily reading through your blog i just realized i should have filed those 1135 forms i see they have a huge penalty this is true um is there a one-time penalty abatement okay uh thank you emily for that question um yes so the t1135 so that's the form that reports your um for canadian tax residents that's the form that reports your uh, non-canadian investment and bank accounts so to the extent that you have investments or bank accounts outside of Canada and the cost base of those investments is over $100,000, uh, you have to file that T1135 form. Um, now, the penalty for filing that form is $25 a day to a maximum of uh, 100 days or $2,500 uh, plus interest. And honestly, if you miss that form for the filing deadline, you're, you'll just miss the form regardless like that that form will be missed um and you'll probably end up paying the um, or, or be assessed at least the uh, maximum $2,500 penalty with with interest so unfortunately not there's not a one one-time abatement um it's like similar to, to the U.S. where you might be able to get away with having a form filed uh, late one time and, and they'll abate the penalty uh not so for the 1135 um but there's a couple options here. So, um, I mean, option number one is is really, you know, it, especially if, you're, if your due date was June 15th, let's say, and you actually had um, self-employment income, or even if it was April 30th, you could just file the T1135 late, uh, pay the penalty and move on. That might be easy. Uh, you can go through the voluntary disclosure program for one year of 1135s. Uh, that's a lot of effort. But if you really want to try to save on the, the penalty, that's one way maybe uh, of doing it. I would say if you're a June 15th filer, maybe you just suck it up um, and take that as a lesson and, and just pay it. But unfortunately, there's not a, a one-time abatement for penalties on the um, 1135. There is um, there is a one-time um, uh, exemption for filing the T1135 in your first year in Canada, but that's not that's not for a returning resident. So if you had tax filing requirements in, um, or if you were a tax resident in the past, then uh, that first year T1135 requirement doesn't uh, apply to you. But if it's your first time in Canada as a tax resident, uh, you only have to file the 1135 in the year following uh, becoming uh, an actual resident. Okay, so let's take a look and see here. Um, okay, I'm just gonna check to make sure everything's working properly here. Once again, once these live streams are done, They'll automatically get posted to the YouTube channel. Um, and what I mean, once again, this this like I said, this is a test and I only sent this one out to the Facebook group, you know, a, a day or so ago. 
Um, and uh, the link I sent was, uh, was an, uh, a non-public link. So this is not even gonna show up right now on the YouTube page uh, for those uh, that don't actually have the link. And my plan is, um, and once again, I really wanna get a ton of feedback from, from the members, because this, you know, this is really all for you. Um, this is meant as education. So as, as much um, education as I can throw on this channel as, as possible, um, I'm gonna try to do that. Uh, but what I'm gonna do in subsequent streams is try to, and I didn't wanna do it on the first one in case we had some technical difficulties, but it looks like things are working out. I'm gonna to try to stream this uh, simultaneously uh, to YouTube and to Facebook, um, and I think maybe even LinkedIn, and that way, as comments are coming in, then we can try to answer them um, as they come in. So they, yeah, we'll be able to do that to um, three three places, and maybe even Twitter, There's not a ton of clients on or Twitter or, uh, individuals that probably engage um, on Twitter, but Facebook um, and um, uh, YouTube certainly will be a, a good place. So we'll be able to do those all, all together, which would, be, uh, which would be great. Okay, so it looks like technically everything's working well here. Okay, so maybe let's just keep going with the questions. Uh, once again, big thanks to everybody who sent something in. Let's see, what's a good one here? Um, oh, okay, so this is from Jagat. Thank you for the question here. Every year, the CRA audits my foreign tax credits on my Canadian return. Is there a way to avoid this uh, every year by filing manually? Okay, really, really good question. So for those of you that have US source income or just really any foreign tax credits on your Canadian return, uh, you'll, you've likely experienced CRA reviewing the foreign tax credits. Now this is not, I mean, people use the term audit. It's not technically an audit. You don't wanna go through a CRA audit, but so this is just a review of the foreign tax credit. And the reason they do that is because often taxpayers and often when they're doing their tax returns themselves or just using you know software, the foreign tax credit calculations will be done incorrectly. And that's just because they're, they're tough to do sometimes. So CRA reviews these foreign tax credits and often they probably find lots of mistakes and then they reassess um, to try to collect more tax revenue. So uh, what Jagat's asking here, is there a, is there a way because every year he's getting reviewed and he's having to supply information um, and he would like to just probably supply that information to begin with. So it used to be back in the day, way back, we could paper file returns with, um, with schedules and then Siri would look at them and maybe do less reviewing. That's not the case now. So you're really required in most cases to electronically file your, um, your tax return, which makes sense. You know, too many paper files in the system. We see what happened with the U.S. with um, all the paper files that went down there that still haven't been um, assessed. I mean, we get these these letters in the. I mean, we got these letters. Um, I think last quite a few last fall uh, from the IRS just saying we haven't. Um, or how did the letters? Yeah, so the letters would say thank you for sending in your tax. This would like let's say for the 2018 year. Thank you for sending in your 2018 tax return. Unfortunately, we can't find it. Can you resend it? So they're in really, um, they're really under a pile of, of, of tax returns there. So it, it, the reason for this, um, uh, this e-filing requirement is to avoid having stacks of paper files. So unfortunately, you won't be able to send down your foreign tax credit calculations ahead of time. And it's frustrating because we, I mean, most of our clients have foreign tax credits. Um, and we get reviewed a lot. I mean, most of them go through fine, uh, but honestly, it's a pain. Um, I mean, it's not extra work we necessarily want to do because the tax returns are done. It's a real pain for clients because um, they want to be done, you know, tax season when they're done filing, but uh, they often get reviewed. So I would say there's nothing you can do ahead of time. I would just say make sure you're comfortable and confident with your foreign tax credit reviews. 
and um, and just have that information ready when when they ask. I mean, they'll ask you know often for the same information every year, and sometimes they'll you know you know they'll be heavy on foreign tax credits one year. Sometimes they'll ask about medical donations. But um, if you can just keep those calculations handy in case they ask, then that's probably the the, the best you can do. Okay. All right, Jagat. Thank you very much for that question. That was great. Okay. Let's let's skip to here. This this is a good non-resident tax question. Uh, so this is from Susan. Susan, thank you for the question. I live in Seattle and we just bought a Victoria condo rental. Uh, it will be losing money each month. Do we need to file anything in Canada? Okay, this is, I mean, it's a very good question. And this is, this is a question we get. Um, this is a question we get a lot. So yeah, so th I'm assuming this is, you know, living in Seattle. So a non-resident of Canada purchasing um, a rental property. Now, if you had a condo that you purchased and it was your personal use condo and you, you know, lived in Seattle and you came up to Victoria and you, you vacationed in, in the condo and it wasn't rented. There shouldn't be any filing requirements until such time as you actually, um, um, until such time, oh, I saw the screen went off there, um, until such time as you actually sell the property. Uh, so you won't have to do anything now if you have uh, rental income that's a completely different uh, that's a completely different issue so to the extent that you have rental income as a non-resident there's a bunch of things you have to consider first without doing anything you're going to be required to to withhold 25 percent of gross rents and submit them to cra now of course that can be a big number especially as um as Susan mentions, uh, they're not making any money with um, with the rental. You could have five thousand dollars, or you know, let's say, you know, twenty thousand dollars of rental income for for the year, or whatever it might be, but expenses of twenty five, and you know, a, a net loss of five thousand. But you'd have to remit twenty five percent of twenty thousand dollars to CRA. Now, of course, that doesn't seem very fair, and that's why they allow for specific forms to be filed uh, to reduce that twenty five percent. So. What you end up doing now, now you want to do this well ahead of time before you start receiving any rental payments is you file um, a form NR6 um, and here, let's just try. We might as well just try the screen sharing here while we're um, we're here. So I'm going to show you the NR6 form. So before you start collecting any information or any um, any rental income from your renter, you want to complete this form. Okay, let's get the form up. Here we go. Okay, so there, and then can do there. Now, hopefully that's showing on the screen. Okay, so essentially what you're doing here is you're completing this NR6 to show CRA that either your um, your your net income is positive but much less than gross income or or negative and then um and then you only remit 25 percent of the net income so you're just really just showing them what is the net or the expected net income of the property and um and once you do that you're only gonna have to require to be you're only have to um uh, you, you'll be required to remit 25 percent of the um of, of the gross rent so in her case if um, if there's no net rental income, uh, you file the NR6 and you have no withholding requirements. Now, the tricky part about NR6 is, especially in cases where we actually have um, net rental income, is that you need an agent. Now, it used to be much 
um, it used to be much easier to to have an agent help. And what would happen is we'd have property managers would be agents for non-residents. The problem with that is we um, the liability for the agents use. So if somebody doesn't withhold, they're, they're you know they're liable for the taxes on the NR6 and the final filing. So nobody really want to take on that risk. So it, it can be kind of challenging to get. Um, uh, an actual agent to help. So what ends up is, uh, you know, as long as you don't want to spend a bunch of extra um, money just to get an agent, often what people will do is they'll have um, an actual relative in um, in Canada be be the agent. So um, yeah, so so step one, file the NR6. I mean, we, we have some clients that just pay the 25% um, and, and then just move on. But if you don't want to pay the 25% of gross rents, then you file the NR6 it gets approved and then that's the amount of withholdings that you send in every year. Okay, so that's step one. So step one is the NR6 filing. Um, step two is you're actually going to, and here we go. Um, so step two is once, uh, once that year passes, you actually have to file a Canadian tax return to report the rental income. So you're not, and, and regardless of whether you, um, you actually made money on the rental or not, so um, the and, and you're only reporting the rental income on that on that tax return. So that's a section 216 non-resident rental return. Uh, you file that. So uh, gross rents minus expenses um, and assuming. So let's say in this, this, this is not the case, but um, in, in the case where Susan asked the question, but let's say there was a little bit of net rental income and you withheld 25 percent that goes to CRA. I mean, it's not that simple. You have to set up non-resident uh, accounts and whatnot. Uh, but the 25% goes in as an installment. So then if you, um, let's say in that year, you ended up having more expenses than you uh, than you thought, and you have net rental income of, of nil, um, you would report that on the Canadian return, and then you just get a credit for the withholding tax that you've already, um, that you've already sent in. Um, and then, of course, there's a whole slew of other procedures if you actually sell the property. We won't get into that. Uh, but just know, so the most important parts here, file the NR6 if you don't want to pay 25% of gross rents and then file the 216 return. And that filing 216 return is really, really important because if you don't file the 216 return, it's possible they um, they tax you on 25% of the gross rents regardless, which could be disastrous in cases where you have high gross rents and um, uh, and then just low net income. So you want, so that, you know, that return is, is, is due in June, but... Once again, there's no reason to ever just wait um, and file something. Just just make sure you um, you you file those uh, those those returns on time. So, uh, Susan, thank you very much for for the question. Okay, I think this is working well. So it looks like the screen sharing worked. And okay, yeah. If anybody sees any issues, don't hesitate to throw something in the uh, the comments there. And what I'm going to do is I'm just going to check and see if this is working well on the YouTube stream. So just bear with me for a second here. Let's see here. It should be. It looks like it's actually streaming, so that's good. I'll certainly find out later when um, when this gets posted. So, okay. So live. That looks like it's there. Yeah, it looks like it's working. 
Okay. All right. Great. Okay. So let's go back here. And okay. So I guess we can move on to another question. All right. What's a good one here? So talked about the 1135, the non resident returns. Okay. Here's a good one. Um, okay. Question from Greg. Do you know of any software that does both Canadian and US returns at the same time? Okay, unfortunately not. We don't really have software that will do both Canadian and US returns at the same time. There are some online programs that will um, um, like run by some software folks that you know you enter your information in, they might spit out a US and Canadian return. Those can work well. Um, I think H&R Block might, might even have one. The, the problem with those uh, programs is they can be quite limited uh, where they won't, you know, in some cases, you know, you, you could use them if you have, let's say you have like a T4 uh, you know, employment income in Canada, that's all you have. But once you have investments and you have, you know, FR filing requirements and 8938s, um, there's really not a great option other than do it yourself or have a, a professional help you. So what we tend to find is if people are doing it themselves, um, they might use, um, I think like TurboTax is probably pretty popular on the US side. So I'm, so I'm talking about uh, Americans actually living in Canada. So that, you know, that, that, that's likely the, the question they're asking. Uh, so Americans living in Canada need to file both Canadians and US returns. So I see a lot of TurboTax files for US and then on the Canadian side, you know, can I mean, there's 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 a, a ton of Canadian tax software. Um, that's not the tricky part. The tricky part is not having to file a uh, or necessary, especially for a simple return, a um, a straight U.S. return or straight Canadian return. The the tricky part is actually the integrations. You want to make sure that you're not paying double tax. So foreign tax credit calculation is really important. Uh, specific treaty elections uh, with um, with the U.S. return if missed. Um, and filed late could be penalized uh, or just not actually putting the, the treaty election at all um, could uh, result in some um, so, some bad results on the the, the assessment side. So I, I mean, don't have a great answer for you here. I mean, if once again, if your if your returns are very simple, maybe some of those like um, online H and R block programs might work. If it's much more complex, probably best to get somebody to help. Um, uh, and I know it's I know it's been really really tough to try to find U.S. preparers in this environment. Everybody's very very busy. Um, staffing is tight. It's hard to find people um, that do this type of work. Uh, we do try to get back to most people that email or call. It's not always that easy, considering we get hundreds of requests um, really a month. Uh, but I do try to refer out when we have a pretty good network of. Um, U.S. tax professionals in Canada. It's not always going to be somebody in your city, but um, if you're looking for somebody, please reach out um, and you know once we you know do our best to do our best to help. Okay, so great. Okay, so Greg, thank you very much for that. That that was that was a great question. Let's. Okay, here's a good one. Let's let's do this. So this this question's from Charlotte. My husband and I, both dual citizens living in Vancouver, are thinking of selling our main home. Well, we have to pay U.S. tax. Okay, this question we get a lot. So um, we get this question so much, I actually ended up, um, and I'll just show everybody here. We actually ended up doing a video on this. So you'll be able to see here on the YouTube channel. I'll pull up here and show. So we had, um, yeah, so on one, one of the podcasts, we discussed... Um, selling U.S. property as a um, American 
living in Canada. Okay. Uh, actually, that's yeah, probably just best to go to the site. Okay. So yeah, so if you just go to, I'll show you here. Um, you just go to podcasts. There's going to be the whole list of podcasts down here. And there was, uh, yeah, Americans selling their principal residence in, in, in Canada. So there's lots of good information on that episode. Uh, so make sure to check that out. And yeah, let me take this opportunity to make sure if, um, if you want to stay updated with um, any new videos or news, uh, make sure to click that subscribe button. That's probably the best way to um, get updated when a new, um, uh, a new podcast drops. Uh, so yeah, make sure to, uh, to subscribe to the channel. So, okay, so let's get back here. So the question again was, uh, so dual citizens uh, living in Canada, selling their principal residence, uh, what does that mean? Um, and what kind of tax consequences um, could they, they, they run into? So we all know, or lots of us know, let's try to get this up. Lots of us know that for the most part, if you sell a principal residence as a Canadian resident, that principal residence will be um, tax-free in most cases. On the US side, however, they do have exemptions for principal resident sales. So for individuals, they have a principal residence exemption of 250,000 for um, couples, 500,000, and those numbers haven't changed in a long time. So, you know, it's, you know, you've seen what's happened in not so much recently, but like in, in the last, you know, 10, 15 years, some of these properties in Canada, especially places like, you know, Toronto or uh, Victoria or Vancouver have gone up significantly. So in a lot of cases, clients will not have a principal residence gain or taxable gain in Canada, because they've been, and we're assuming here, uh, in, in terms of Charlotte's question, that they've lived in the house the whole time as a principal resident since they, they purchased it. Um, they won't pay any tax in Canada in most cases. Now, on the U.S. side, and I'm not sure what the actual gain is, but on the U.S. side, if they exceed $500,000 in net gain, they could actually have taxes owing on the U.S. side, which is not a great outcome, because in most people's heads, okay, I sold my principal residence, uh, tax-free. And then once they start looking in the U.S. side, they recognize, okay, wow, now I actually have to pay an amount. It wasn't expected. And nobody likes writing checks to the IRS, uh, especially large checks. I mean, we've seen cases where we did a couple this year, $30,000, $40,000 of tax on um, on a principal residence sale. So here, I'll show you here. We have, um, now this calculator, I showed it on the podcast. And we can just take a quick look at it. Now this is one um, I just ended up doing for a client the other day. And what I'm gonna try to do is I'm gonna try to um, have this coded as an actual um, calculator on the website. So right now we have the st uh, substantial presence uh, calculator that we, we put on just recently. And, um, and this should be the next one. So, but I have to actually get this coded and put it on, uh, put on the site. Um, so this will be nice where you, you should only have to put in certain entries to get just an idea of whether maybe you're, you're taxable. I mean, it's not, it's not something you want to use for, for specific tax advice, but it'll give you a general sense of whether you're, um, you're taxable. So let's use this as an example. So this is how this calculator works. Um, and let me do, so this, I'm going to change this U.S. exemption here to 500K because we're assuming there's a couple here. Okay. Okay. So the way this works is we're going to enter in 
are proceeds. And if you haven't sold the property yet, it's really just what you think the property's worth, right? So let's say in this case, proceeds of 750,000, the original cost was 404, net gain, gain of 346,000, uh, full Canadian exclusion. So it was our principal residence the whole time, no Canadian tax. Now for US purposes, um, once again, one of the mistakes that you could make is take the 346,000, multiply it by an exchange rate and get, um, get your gain. That's an incorrect way of calculating these gains. What you have to do is you have to calculate the rate um, at the time of purchase and the rate at the time of sale. So in this example, 750,000, um, at a rate of let's say 1.3, roughly what the Canadian dollar is trading at now, your U.S. proceeds would be 581,000. Um, and you let's say you purchase the property when the exchange rate was 1.1. Your cost base is 230, uh, uh, 367,000 for a net gain of 214,000. Um, now, and oh, let me just step back here. So the exemption that you get on the Canadian on the U.S. side, you have to have lived in the property two out of the last five years. So not only do you have rules for $250,000 and $50,000 of exemption, uh, you have to have lived in the property two out of the last five years to get uh, access to that actual exemption. So um, so your exemption is 500,000, so no U.S. gain, so no U.S. tax. Now, let's use an example where you have a property okay so in this case you had a property that you think you can sell or have sold for 1.2 million dollars um converted to us 930,000 original cost base let's say is the same 367 now your your net gain for us purposes is actually 562,000 you still get your $500,000 exemption but your net gain after that is uh, 62,000, which you do have to pay tax on. So, and once again, th these are just rough figures uh, for illustration purposes only, because we have a, a, the 20% capital gain rate, it might be lower than that. Uh, but just for purposes of, um, of this example, um, and then we also have net investment income tax, um, the Obamacare tax uh, that came in um, uh, many years ago that never got uh, taken out. So that needs to get paid as well. So 3.8 plus the 20%, 24% of the 62,000 is your um, extra US tax you'll pay on that principal residence um, sale. Now, even if you have that gain, I mean, often you'll have, you know, carry forwards of, of, of losses for US purposes. Let's say you had $60,000 of losses already carry forward on your, your US return, your tax on the US side will be much will be much less. Um, and also, if you happen to have foreign tax credits that were um, carried forward from um, from passive activities on your 1040, that could further reduce um, that 14,000. So let's say you had $14,000 of tax owing, but you had $10,000 of uh, foreign tax credit carry forwards on your U.S. return, uh, you'd reduce that down. So there is some planning there, but just just to get a sense for you know what um, what your liability might be on the U.S. side if you do sell your principal residence, and always a good idea to um, to do these calculations well ahead of, of time. You don't want to be doing these when you're getting close to filing the returns. Um, nobody likes that kind of um, that that kind of news. Okay, so hopefully that did a good job of illustrating the principal residence exemption. Let's see if we can move on to another question. And maybe what we'll do here. I'm not sure how long we're going to go with this because I really wanted to really just do this as a test. Um, 
and then just watch it back to make sure audio levels were fine and video levels were fine. So maybe what we'll do, I'll do one more, um, I'll do one more question and then I'll wrap it up. Um, and then hopefully we can get some feedback from, from the group. Um, I have lots of questions here, so we could, we could even do, um, another one at, at one point, maybe early, early next week. So let's try to just do one more question. Okay. What's a good one here? Um, Okay. Uh, okay. So Mohammed uh, asks, uh, my accountant is not getting back to me and still hasn't filed my U.S. return. What penalties should I expect? Okay. So, yeah, we do we do get this a lot. I mean, it's summertime. You you often find, I mean, you know, accountants are 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 very busy, just like most professionals. It's not a reason not to get back to clients, but you do get this a lot where people will email and say, my client, my accountant's not getting back to me. Can can you help? And it's often too late because. You know, you're into summer and we still have lots of work to do this week. It's hard to get people in the system. It's, it's not until maybe next year we can put them on a, on a waiting list. So he's asking here, uh, what penalty should I expect? So, it, I mean, I don't have any more information other than this, but it sounds like, um, you know, the return is not filed yet, of course. Um, but we don't know if they've extended the return. So in cases where you don't feel like you can file your return by June 15th, because don't forget, you're going to get uh, Americans living in Canada to get an automatic extension uh, till June 15th to file um, your U.S. tax return. So let's say, uh, you know, say June 15th passed, um, you would also need to file. So that was an automatic extension. You need to file a 4868 extension to further extend to October 15th. So hopefully, hopefully his accountant did that. So if his accountant did that and then he files by October 15th, you're fine. There shouldn't be any penalties. The FBAR is not due until October 15th um, as well. If they didn't file an extension, um, it's really going to depend on what type of forms are in his return. So uh, the FBAR, once again, is not it's not actually um, due until October 15th, but if he had FBAR requirements and 8938 requirements, there could be a penalty in the 8938 form. If he had treaty election, uh, elections, there could be penalties on those. And we don't tend to, see, I mean, we don't file things late, so we, that's why we probably don't see a lot of these, but we, we're not getting questions from other clients that um, either file their own returns about late 8833s, but, uh, but you know, of course, you never want to file any of these late because some of these penalties are significant. And and um, some some of the um, some of the forms like the 3520s and the 5471s, which report foreign trust and foreign corporate ownership, they do penalize. So those ones and those are like ten thousand dollar penalties uh, per instance, and those are those are massive. Obviously, nobody wants to get a ten thousand dollar penalty. So make sure to file your extension. Um, and if you get to October 15th, um, there is an opportunity to actually write in the department and get a, a December 15th filing extension. You don't want to do that. Just just get just get your returns done. You have all year. Um, um, it's it, the worst thing you can do is procrastinate with these with these returns. So, yes, yeah, it's, it's hard to answer this question because it depends on what forms are in his return. It might turn out he only has a very simple return. Maybe he's got a T4 slip, um, maybe no F bars, or maybe F bars with no 8938s. Maybe you get away with no penalties, especially if no tax is owing. If tax is owing, there will be penalties, um, but certainly not as much as if there's like a 5471 that's late in, in there. So I don't have a lot of information in this, in this question. So hopefully that's that's a little bit helpful. Uh, once again, anybody has any questions on these, just feel free to shoot me an email. I'll do my best to you know, help either send out a referral or, or answer a quick question. Okay, well, that that might be a good time to wrap this up. Once again, this this has been a test and and, and I, it seems like it's gone well. I wanted to, you know, test some of the, the screen sharing um, and um, and we're doing this because we're hopefully we're gonna bring on some guests and that, that'll be great because I've done lots of these podcasts just solo, but it'd be really nice to actually bring on some um, some, some other professionals. Um, and, and, you know, because this is live, working out, you know, a lot of the actual, 
technical um, uh, bugs, but I think this one actually worked worked out pretty well. So I uh, would love to hear your, your feedback. Once again, don't, um, don't forget to subscribe to the YouTube channel. That's the best way to get notified of new content. Um, big thanks everybody on, on the Facebook page. We're over 7,600 members right now. Uh, everybody's been great at answering questions and really supporting um, each other. Um, really, really nice to see. So um, yeah, once again, thanks everybody and we'll see you soon.